This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back. It's the Dear Prudence Show. I am Dear Prudence. I'm also known as Daniel Mallory Orbert. With me in the studio this week is my older sister, Laura Turner. Here's the bio. I'm just going to read it without comment. I just want to say first that she submitted it and my producer put it in the script. Laura Turner is a writer living in San Francisco. She's also my older sister and by far the best of all the Ortberg children. I don't know where I would be without her. That's what it says. That's what I'm reading. Those words came out of your mouth. I just want to point out that Eovol, you don't even use the name Ortberg. So claiming to be the best Orberg child while going by Laura Turner well, feels to me like trying to have the best of both worlds. No, it is not because the name Orberg is legally still in my name. <sighs> I kept it. I have two middle names now. Orted. My regular middle name and Ortberg. That makes me feel slightly better about the fact that I believe I will have two middle names when I change my name legally. Yeah. When I get around to finishing it. I think that, that is exciting for you to have. Oh, uh, Grace just Grace is silently here in the studio uh, again. The silent she just guest tapped me on the shoulder and gave me three, which apparently means I've promised to take on another middle name, and I forgot about it. I'm shocked that you forgot something important. If anyone listening has a name they'd like me to add while I'm at it, uh, please feel free to get in touch, and I'll throw it in there. Yeah, contractually obligated. Um, I'm. No, 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 no. No more tapping. No more tapping. You either have a comment that you want to swing around to a microphone to make, or you don't make it. That's my ruling. Laura, I'm so glad you're here on the show. Me too. I want to try to keep this relatively uh, according to the rules. Uh, And so I think we should just get started and you should read our first letter. I would love that. Thank you. The first letter says the subject, friends in an abusive relationship. Dear Prudence, I'm really concerned about two of my friends. Let's call them Jen and Kevin, who are married to each other and in what appears to be an increasingly abusive relationship. Throughout their whole relationship, which started in college... They've always bickered a lot. They've now been married for a few years, and in the past year or two, things have gotten really bad. They've had innumerable massive blowout fights with each other in public, or when we've been at their house, that have even turned somewhat physical. The abuse appears to be coming from both sides. We know Kevin's been seeking treatment for depression, and when we spoke with Jen, she's expressed concern that separation could make those matters worse. Kevin's made threats to this extent, it seems, question mark. An added issue is financial matters. Jen's getting a PhD right now, and she is concerned about being able to afford to live on her own. What can or should we do? So one of the things that I think came up for me as I was reading this is the idea of mutual abuse, which seems like a Mm -hmm. very vague expression I have heard before Mm -hmm. and wanted to do just a little more research over. So spending a little time um, on a couple uh, of of resources for people who are attempting to get out of abusive relationships and it's kind of my understanding that that stems from a couple of different misunderstandings mm. um, and that what's really important is, is that while both members of an abusive relationship can engage in healthy unhealthy behaviors, mm. um, the idea that both people are like with equal amounts of power, with equal amounts of control, um, 
simply creating this situation, it, it's, it does not seem to actually really be the case. And mm-hmm. it kind of comes more from um, a, a history of maybe like if the police get called out and they have to make an arrest and they simply like take down both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, if one person is getting like pushed around all day and hits back, they just record that as, well, they were both physical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thing that like came up for me as I was reading this is like, they say this is this appears to be mutually abusive. And yet I see that, you know, Kevin has apparently threatened that apparently if she were to try to leave him, he might his health might be at risk and he might die. Mm-hmm. And that Jennifer is afraid to leave because she doesn't have the money to do so. Yeah. So when it comes to who seems to have the power or the control in this relationship and who seems to not have the resources they need to get away, it seems pretty clear that Kevin is abusing Jen. And Jen may be yelling. Mm -hmm. Jen may be saying unkind or uh, not okay things. But Kevin does not seem to think that he can't leave. Kevin seems to be trying to keep her from leaving. So I do think um, there actually is kind of a a more clear case here than, than would first seem to be. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on a really important dynamic in this letter, which is that um, it seems that neither Jen nor Kevin are operating as their best selves in this relationship. Like that feels very clear. We can kind of lay that down. But it also does not seem like a mutually um, balanced relationship in terms of power, just given those notes that Danny made about uh, about Jen's feelings, fear of leaving, financial instability if she were to leave, and, and the word threat being used to describe what Kevin has done. Um, I wonder very much what what the relationship is like for the letter writer between them and Jen, if they're someone who's a little bit closer with Jen and um, maybe has more of a, a confidence there or an openness. And if that might be the way forward in this relationship is to kind of, if the letter writer feel comfortable making themselves open as a safe place for Jen, particularly it seems like since this is part of a maybe a group of friends from college because there's a lot of you know we know this we've observed this mm-hmm. um part of what i wondered if given the financial instabilities that jen's dealing with as a phd student if one possible area of help might be for some friends to put together some money and say to jen you know we we have noticed these things would it be possible that it would be helpful for you if you felt like you had uh, financially, the ability to put down the first and last month's rent on mm-hmm. a new place. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that would be uh, amazing. Or, or even to to try to help her figure out if she has resources available on the campus of wherever she's receiving Definitely. her PhD. Yeah, um, and again, that doesn't mean she has to like go to the dean of students and reveal the details of her situation. But any help that you can provide in terms of Jen, if you did need to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, here are the ways that we, your friends, could help both financially and also in terms of getting resources so that you could. Yeah. Um, and I think to really ask some questions of Jen, like, um, uh, you know, seeking a separation could make those matters worse. And you mm-hmm. seem to think Kevin's made threats to that extent. I think that's worth getting clarity yes, on. Yes, absolutely. And again, that doesn't mean hounding Jen. Um, if, if she seems really cagey or really reluctant to speak about it, you know, give her time, give her space. Mm-hmm. But say, my worry is that Kevin has said, if you try to leave, he will kill himself. Mm-hmm. That that to me is what I'm like reading between the lines. Yeah. Here, is that you are responsible for his life or death. Yeah. Um, that's not 
how depression works. No. Um, if he says that to you, you don't need to give him a free pass just because he's depressed. No, and that's not a burden that belongs on anyone else's shoulders. That doesn't belong on Jen's shoulders. Right. And and if he hasn't said that, you know, then that will be helpful right. to know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to try to find out, to say, like, this really concerns me. Here's mm-hmm. my fear. Yeah. When you've told me that he's made threats to this extent, I, I, I've believed it to mean this. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, and yeah. if that is what's going on, to just really stress how not okay that is. I wonder, too, if part of what's happened, because the letter writer talks about uh, that they bickered a lot in college, um, or at least they've always bickered a lot. Their relationship started in college, and lately things have been spilling over. And so I wonder if um, you might also be able to kind of understand and ask Jen, does it feel like, is there something that's made things shift? Is there a particular stressor or moment that that made things get worse? Because I've noticed things getting worse. Or... Are we as your friends just now seeing something that's been there kind of all along? Yeah. Um, and trying to trying to listen to her and understand what it's been like for her to be in this relationship. Because there's there are pieces here that just would be hard for anyone to put together not being in the relationship themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my primary worry would be for this letter writer mm-hmm. would be to say, well, because they've always fought. Right. And because there's not just one person kind of cowering in a corner. Right. I can't possibly identify power dynamics mm-hmm. or call this abuse coming primarily from one side. Um, and, you know, part of what makes it abuse is that power dynamic. Yeah. Is that like um, – uh, sense of unsafety, um, mm-hmm. sense of isolation, sense of dependence that you foster in the person you're abusing. Um, so, you know, don't let the fact that don't, don't try to like it, it's sort of like um, when people have a hard time kind of distinguishing between like prejudice and racism. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, well, what's the power behind it? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and so to say, like, if they both yell at each other in public, that might be distressing. That might mm-hmm. be awful. If only one of them feels like I can't get out of this because my partner will die yeah. and I don't have the money to leave, yeah. then it's very clear who's being abused, even if they are not behaving in a way that you would think that's what an abuse victim looks like. Yeah, and I think that's another really helpful piece to point out because it can feel like, well, we just will wait to say anything or intervene and, t- and meaningfully until we see – Jen with a black eye or something that just feels incredibly dramatic mm-hmm. and and um, like then, oh, well, I know I have to take action. And, you know, certainly you would you would intervene then. But it's also really important to to notice and pay attention to those very kind of subtle sometimes dynamics, particularly if you and your friends are accustomed to seeing them in a relationship you might describe as dramatic or volatile or they bicker a lot. It's just normal. That's what they do. That's Jen and Kevin. And mm-hmm. um, that that is not uh, – it, it's a little bit like that – I don't know if this ever was actually a real thing, but that frog in the boiling water analogy right. where you kind of think things are simmering up to a boiling point as opposed to going from zero to 212 degrees all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. But um, it seems pretty clear that, yeah, Jen is in a position where she feels – a lot of responsibility for Kevin's emotional well-being um, and feels like her taking action to protect herself or separate from him would make things worse. And no matter what else is going on in the relationship, that's not a good place for her to be in. Right. And so this doesn't mean that you have to say everything Jen has ever done is good. Um, But I think you can kind of clearly identify who's the person who needs help. Mm -hmm. Um, 
would it be better for both of them to be out of this relationship? I think so. Yeah. And so I, I think to look for ways to communicate to Jen both like, I'm really worried. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I want to be able to help you get out of this. Yeah. And if they're, you know, if Jen wants to sort of say, I'm sure it's not that bad to just really kind of, again, you don't have to like hammer at home. You don't mm-hmm. have to force her to do anything, but just to really say, when you tell me that you're worried that if you try to leave, Kevin might hurt himself or somebody else yeah. and that you don't have the money to leave, that's not okay. And that's not a normal way yeah. to feel. Not like you're not normal, Jen, but like yeah. you shouldn't have to feel that way about a relationship. Yeah. A healthy relationship, even an imperfect one, will not have one person feeling like, no. I don't know what I would, I couldn't possibly leave. I'm not allowed to leave. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that to revisit the issue of are there, what resources are available on her campus? Is there a counseling center? Is mm-hmm. it subsidized? Um, are there, you know, is there a hotline that she can call? Is there someone she can speak with in person? Yeah. And then to think through, you know, it seems like this is part of a, a group of friends. Um, so to also think through what what you would and would not be willing to say to Kevin is probably helpful. I don't know kind of what that relationship looks like, but um, it sounds like he might be someone who's prone to making threats and saying things that make Jen feel um, afraid, possibly. And so to think through, is this a situation where you might need to be very guarded around what you actually share with Kevin? Because giving him more information about Jen's emotional state or asking about it would actually be giving him more power. And that would probably be a a bad thing in this situation. Yep. I I think that's a really good point, um, that you can't both sides your way out of this one. You can't be like, well, I disagree with what they're both doing. Um, You know, sure, it's wrong for Kevin to emotionally and financially manipulate Jen, But Jen has also said or done bad things, so I'm going to try to, like, be equally supportive to both Mm -hmm. of them. And again, that doesn't mean you have to say Kevin is an irredeemable monster who I no longer care about. But especially in terms of helping Jen get out of this relationship, um, you cannot help Jen while also being a confidant to Kevin about this. Right. Um, And so, you know, to whatever extent you may or may not be able to talk to him about certain choices and behaviors that he needs to change – that's going to have to wait until you know Jen is safe. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that just can't be your priority right now. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think the last thing in terms of resources, you know, if your town has women's shelters, yeah. those will be good resources. Again, even if she doesn't decide to utilize them, mm-hmm. but to find out where they are, um, what they do, do they offer counseling? Do they mm-hmm. offer somebody to talk to over the phone who can kind of give you a sense of like, yeah, we actually do take in people yeah. in situations like this. Um, I think one of the worst feelings in um, in a relationship or in a stuck moment in life, one of the worst feelings is I don't have any options. Right. I can't get out of this. I can't leave. And it sounds like Jen is really feeling that right now. And so as a friend, if you're someone who can put together, you know, a list of here are five different options we have and kind of frame it as I'm in your corner. Mm-hmm. I want to, you know, listen to her, listen to what she has to say. Um, and And then if it would be helpful – help her to see maybe these are five different things we can do. We can, you know, I can take you away for the weekend if it's as simple as you just need to get away and need a little time and distance. I can drive you to the shelter. I can help you with finances. Um, Help you look for apartments. Help you look for a new place on your own. You can talk with a counselor at the school that you go to. But just for her to know there are options so she is not feeling, you know, suffocated on top of everything else so she can kind of take a deep breath to be able to make the, the best decision for her, I think, would be really, really good. Right. And I think to really um, not bring up 
well, you've both done some things that seem right. pretty not okay if she is talking about trying to leave and feeling trapped. Yes. Um, uh, because to have that kind of, you know, again, I don't want to say that this is 100% the case, but oftentimes abusers will, one of the ways that they will make their victims stay is they'll say like, well, you made me angry. Oh, yeah. And that one time you pushed me back. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, equal on both our parts and yeah. other people have seen you act badly and so they won't believe you. Yeah. Um, and so part of my concern here is that because you have seen some of those moments, you will think mm-hmm. totally equal, totally equal on both sides. No one person needs help getting out. They're yeah. both just doing the exact same thing. Um, and when she clearly needs help, uh, I, I, I think that would not be a good or a useful thing to say. Yeah. But I, this is painful and I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. And I, I really hope that you're able to provide Jen with some meaningful help and I hope, she, hope she's able to leave. Yeah. You sound like a very caring friend and I'm glad that she has you in her life. Yeah. So we are moving away from the world of the family and into the world of the workplace. Um, and the subject of this next letter is religious inclusion in the workplace. Dear Prudence, I just found out that my office's yearly holiday party has been scheduled for December 7th, a Friday evening. I'm Jewish, and on Friday evenings, I celebrate Shabbat, a weekly Jewish holiday. Shabbat is celebrated differently by every Jew, but in general, it's considered a day of rest. I personally observe by going to synagogue for services or by having a traditional meal with friends and family. I will not be able to attend the holiday party due to this conflict. I'm far from the only Jewish person in my office. I'd say we make up about 15 to 20 percent of the staff, but I'm not sure that anyone else aside from me would really care. My employer pays a lot of lip service to diversity and inclusion, so this oversight feels particularly hurtful. Doesn't scheduling a holiday party on Shabbat fall under the category of reasonable accommodations for religious-based inclusion, or am I being obnoxious if I bring this issue up that might only impact me? The holiday party isn't mandatory, after all, and I do appreciate my employer's generosity in throwing one at all. Thanks in advance. This is a tricky one. I I found myself really, like, I I appreciate the thought that the letter writer put in behind um, thinking through their, you know, what their employer's perspective was. But it's also, I mean, to work in a place that says they value diversity and inclusion and to not have necessarily thought through the Jewish people on staff may not be able to attend this um, is something that's worth bringing up and talking about. So I think, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly how to say this. And I think, you know, prudence might have some better wording ideas. But I think this is very worth raising to the workplace uh, if you have a human resources team. Um, if there's, you know, a coworker you feel especially close with and maybe can run some ideas by them beforehand. Um, but to to just be able to say, to kind of raise your hand and say, hey, I'm glad to be part of this team. I'd like to be able to attend a holiday event. Um, and part of what I like about working here is the sense of inclusiveness. Or part of what I wish we did a better job at was actually being inclusive, mm-hmm. even though we say we, we want to be. Um, I'm not going to be able to attend for religious reasons. And that's something that is worth thinking through. That would be really, really valuable to bring up, I think. Right. Especially because presumably the reason this is a holiday party and not a Christmas party is because they are acknowledging their employees celebrate multiple holidays. Um, And, you know, all that you're suggesting bringing up is simply telling somebody at your company that you can't generally attend parties on Friday nights and you would like that to be taken into consideration when they schedule big parties. 
that's very reasonable to very say. Reasonable. You know, the question about whether or not this falls under reasonable accommodation sort of suggests that right. you are maybe like hoping that there's a, a, a legal backup to this. And my sense in this is not because you're interested in bringing legal action, but you're sort of worried like if I don't have that to fall back on, will I look like I'm just making a big right. deal over nothing? And I think it's actually fine, even if it does only affect you yeah. to say you know, it may be too late for this year. Mm -hmm. It may not. If we can move it to a Thursday, yeah. I would really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, if we could, you know, in the future, not always schedule holiday parties for Fridays. Yeah. Um, I would like that very much. I think that's a super reasonable thing to say. Um, I don't think you need to worry about whether or not the other Jewish people in the office celebrate Shabbat in the same way that you do. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you have every right to speak up on your own behalf um, and to say that you would like them to take this into account, not just this time, but in the future. Yeah. And I think when I was saying it feels tricky, I think it's more the tricky piece is just figuring out how to say what you want. But that you that you can and, and maybe Absolutely. should say something feels like a great idea. And certainly you sound like a really thoughtful person. I think that um, if this is something where it would make you feel better thinking about other people coming after you, you know, making room for them um, in their celebration of Shabbat or just being able to speak up for themselves, that could be super helpful. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with and, in fact, something quite wonderful about being able to speak up for yourself and saying, yep, I'm just one person, but we pay a lot of lip service, as you say, to diversity inclusion. Here's one way we can actually be quite inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. And inclusion is not simply like handed out in terms of like the proportion of the group. Right. right? Like that's a big part of the reason why inclusion is important is because often people are underrepresented. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of the point of uh, trying to make sure you can accommodate as many people as yeah. possible is even one person matters. Yes. Um, even the possibility of future people matter. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And sometimes we can feel like unless we're part of a group that is, um, you know, of a significant size, we should not raise our hands and ask to be counted. And I think in this particular case, but in many other cases, large groups would benefit so much from taking into account the stories of the just one person um, in their organization who has probably been overlooked in other ways. And so for you to be able to say this kind of thing, because it certainly applies to this holiday party, but there may well be future events that people would schedule for a Friday night um, had they not really thought about it. And I think that you have um, not only every right to bring it up and have that sense of being backed up by, you know, probably what is in the law, but also just what is in the spirit of uh, inclusion and diversity and and valuing people. That's very important. Yep. And I think the last thing that I want to add, because I, I think we've mostly covered it, mm -hmm. is you're being very generous towards your employer in your last sentence, which yes. is that the holiday party isn't mandatory. And I just want to remind everyone that mandatory <laughs> holiday parties are wage theft. Um, and it is not Get a generous. T-shirt that says that it is not generous of your employer to uh, throw a holiday party. It is, uh, you know. Employers aren't generous. Well, I'll yeah. just go ahead and say that. Employers, Employers aren't generous. Do that to boost your sense of morale and friendship at a company, which is great, but that also makes you want to stay there longer and work harder and give them more money. So, you know, go to the holiday party or don't. Do whatever you want. Yeah, it's not like a friend showing up at your house and surprising you with like a beautiful surprise party just out of the goodness of their hearts. It's a good point. Um, I did that for Zach this year. Get, that's your husband? Yeah. Um, there's some, that's you know, generous. Yeah, but you got something <gasps> out of it too. Well, uh, I suppose altruism. <laughs> Also, literally just showing up at someone's house and demanding to have a party is incredibly rude. <laughs> Not a, uh, hello, Grace. Thank you so much for joining hello. us. 
Um, it depends you... on if you bring the party with you. Hi, I'm here with two dozen of your friends, and we're about to have a party in your house. I hope you enjoy it. So I guess we know how you feel about holiday parties. Or surprise parties, rather. Yeah. You don't like surprise parties. Well... You would not be delighted in having a surprise party thrown. In my house. Not in my house. Not... Really? Hmm. Wait. Even if they took up responsibility for cleaning up afterwards? If I didn't have anything else to do and wasn't specifically planning to chill out, but how would you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like a good friend would try to understand that, would know, like, but I guess, I don't know, it's difficult. This is a difficult thing. They can't be inside your head. All right, fair enough. Parties I, I, a time theft. I agree. Thank you very much for your input, Grace. Laura, would you please read our next letter? Will do. Thank you. Subject. Is it a bad idea to try to get pregnant while the future of my marriage is uncertain? Dear Prudence. My husband and I have been together for 11 years and married for five. We have an amazing two-year-old daughter who we absolutely adore. We were about to start trying for another child when, during an argument, my husband told me he doesn't think our marriage will last, and he's been thinking about ways we can separate while still living together so he can still see our daughter every day. This does not come as a surprise to me. We've both been unhappy for a while now, and we think about splitting up approximately every six months since even before our daughter was born. So far, we've hung on, but I think we're both about ready to throw in the towel. We're planning to go to counseling, but what I'm wondering is, is it absolutely crazy to think about going ahead with trying for a second child despite our marital predicament? I'm not under any illusions that a second child will save our marriage. However, we're both in our late 30s, so if we split up, it is unlikely that I at least will be able to have any children with anyone else, especially as I am not quick to recover from breakups, and anticipate that I will definitely be menopausal before I'm ready to date again. Also, if we're going to get divorced, which isn't a foregone conclusion by any means, while I'm sure it will be harder on both of us to be a single parent of two children, I think it will be easier for our daughter if she has a sibling to rely on. I had a lot of conflict with my parents growing up, and I feel like I wouldn't have survived without my sisters to lean on. Plus, both of us really want a second child, and we really want to have one with each other, even if we don't end up staying together. We don't hate each other, and we're exploring the idea of cohabiting and co-parenting even if we don't stay married. Is this a terrible idea? It's a tricky idea, for sure. Um, I feel like one important thing to clarify here is to separate things that you have projected onto your daughter versus what you want. Um, I think the stuff about, I think it'll be easier for her if we get divorced and there's also a baby— I, I don't know that you know that. Uh, you know what was true about your own childhood. Um, you don't know what your daughter's internal experience is like. I could easily see reading a letter from her in, you know, 20 years that's like, as my parents were divorcing, they had a second baby, and that meant the divorce got all the attention, and then the baby, and I got none. Um, she certainly won't be able to lean on a baby. Um, so uh, I don't think that that should be a reason either for or against Um, I think what you really need to focus on is what I want is to have a child. Um, I believe that if I get divorced, uh, it will be more difficult for me to find someone else to have a child with. And I need to deal with the consequences of that tough choice. So the options available to you would be either split with your partner, develop a shared custody agreement, and then, you know, either try to find someone else to have a child with or decide to have a child on your own um, that you don't share custody of with your your partner. All of those have upsides and downsides, but I think it's going to be better to weigh honestly um, why you're doing it, which is not out of, you know, pure disinterested love for your already existing daughter, but it's something that you want. I think that's really the 
most important question here because this, like Danny said, it's important to separate out the various threads in this letter. And there are many reasons why the letter writer wants to have a second child. And so part of it is to comfort her, you know, thinks it will comfort her daughter. Part of it is the biological clock is ticking. Part of it is she seems to like the idea of having another child with this particular partner. Um, there, There are certainly many, many reasons to go forward with this plan. Um, as someone who has a six-month-old baby and, you know, am, am aware in my own very specific, unique, personal way, the demands of having a young child and um, the difficulty of doing that even with a partner who's very attentive, it, it sounds real tough to try to do that while you're also navigating the emotional complexities of a divorce, the physical, financial, you know, all, all the things that go with that. Um, and it, it does sound like if if you've been bringing up divorce if in your relationship, that's been on the table since before your daughter was born. It's hard for me to imagine this relationship changing enough that it will be a, a lifelong one or go the distance to um, provide kind of a stable environment for your daughter at home. And I think something to consider, too, is that um, – the child that you would have, the second child, would be kind of born under circumstances that could be really tough for a kid. And so, like Danny said, um, both the child who you have now not necessarily being helped by at the addition of a sibling um, and the sibling's, you know, story of being born being one in which um, it was kind of a like last gasp of a of a marriage um, that seemed to be in a really difficult place. I know you're not saying kind of stay together for the kids, but that seems like a a tricky idea at the very, very best. Yeah. So I don't want to say, yes, this sounds great. Do it. You're going to be amazing co-parents. Divorcing will be the thing that will make you go from being like a tricky husband and wife combo to really great, evolved, super happy cohabiting co-parents. I also don't want to say absolutely don't do it. Um, I just think it's going to be really helpful to you to take your time and think through what are the worst case scenarios in each scenario and to accept that there's just going to be loss and sadness no matter what you do. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be a version where you get everything that you want. And so it's going to be really important to think through, like, what if you decide to have a baby, then you separate, then you surprise yourself by um, not taking as long as you thought mm-hmm. you were going to need and meeting somebody else? Um, meeting somebody else that you also want to co-parent with, meeting somebody else who also wants a child. I'm not saying that you should assume that will happen, but ask, like, what if that does? What would I do then? Um, How would it feel about the choice that I had made um, if something unexpected came after it? Um, And so to that end, I think seeing a uh, couple's counselor is going to be super important, not with the goal of staying together as a married couple, Um, but of figuring out how can you be the best parents to the daughter you already have? Mm -hmm. Um, Is the way that you are married and treating one another right now, is it affecting her? Is it damaging to her? Are there ways that you could um, work on the ways that you communicate, again, whether or not you stay married, um, that are just going to help set a good foundation? And maybe after you've done that for like a period of time where it doesn't feel like I'm on the verge of just like running off Mm -hmm. and calling it a day, um, like get get to a point where you feel like, ah, I know what this kind, supportive co-parenting relationship is going to look like before you make a decision about whether or not to introduce another child to the mix. 
I think that's really helpful. And I think this is one of those scenarios in which really thinking through several different paths ahead of you will benefit you and your family in the long run. So to see a counselor and to start to ask what would it look like if we decided to live together under the same roof but no longer be married to one another? What would it look like if we moved into different places and decided to co-parent? Think through those scenarios together and possibly decide on one of those with your husband. Think about what is the one that is most appealing to you? And then once you've been living that for a little while to think about is what we want to have a kind of arrangement where we try for another child and then introduce that child into this ongoing arrangement that we have. But for you to be committed right now, you know, what are the things you can control? You can control the way that you interact with him, that you interact with your daughter And the environment that you provide for your daughter seems like, you know, a really important thing to be thinking about. And so Mm -hmm. to work on that and give yourself a little bit of time to really get to a place where you feel less tenuous about exactly what the future is going to look like and more concrete about your day-to-day ability to just care for your daughter, that seems like a win for everybody. Yeah. I also just want to point out, I I do feel a little old-fashioned for saying this, Um, especially though I think because I I will often advocate even for people with children um, to leave their marriage, usually Mm -hmm. because it just sounds like there are no other good options and this is untenable. Um, I also want to acknowledge like divorce is really hard, especially for kids. Um, And, you know, if if there's a chance for a marriage to be repaired um, or or for a connection to be rebuilt, I think that's a really good thing. And so you say, you know, if we're going to get divorced, which isn't a foregone conclusion by any means, um, spend some time with that rather than kind of jumping ahead to maybe we'll just be great co-parents. Let's have another baby, call it a day, let that kind of eat up the last embers of love that we have for one another and then be like friendly co-workers. Um, if it's not a foregone conclusion that you two need to get divorced and then it's only kind of a cycle of every six months um, and you're kind of admitting some difficult, painful, but maybe necessary truths to one another, part of what you may be able to do in that couple's counselor uh, in those sessions is to say, I would like to find a way to have a good marriage. Maybe not the greatest marriage of all time, mm-hmm. um, but I would like to maybe find a way to, if there is a way to be married to one another and to be loving and kind and respectful of one another and to appreciate one another and to communicate well, I'd like to find it. And if there's not, if this is just absolutely done, then once once we've kind of figured that out for sure, then I want to figure out how to divorce well. But, you know, if there's a chance that you can make this work, um, spend some time in couples counseling together putting some of the energy that you are kind of right now putting towards the fantasy of co-parenting and splitting up. Um, Invest that in the therapy together first. I think that's a really wonderful thing to say. And I think um, if there's the possibility that, you know, divorce is not at this point a foregone conclusion, and it seems to me that you feel a little conflicted about that. Earlier in the letter, you say uh, something about you feel like you're not quite throwing in the towel yet, but you feel like you're just about to. Um, Maybe you can also see a counselor on your own Mm -hmm. and think through kind of what that might look like for you. And then if you do and feel like you are able to stick in the marriage or ask the question, what would it look like if we both decided to stay here? Could you give yourself six months to do that? Yeah. Um, So that you're not kind of kicking the can down the road forever and ever, but that you're sent, you're giving yourself some parameters in which to 
cultivate the kind of marriage that you want to have if that is still a possibility. Yeah. And you say, you know, you're not quick to recover from breakups and you think you'll definitely be menopausal before you're ready to date again. And you're only in your late 30s Mm -hmm. now. Again, obviously, menopausal can mean a lot of different things depending on like the individual. But like part of what I think you're saying there is, is if this relationship ends, it'll be really hard for me to get over that. Mm -hmm. And that says to me that there's still some real love here. Um, and because you don't kind of go into detail about why you guys think about splitting up every every six months or so, I just wonder, like, maybe that's not as – maybe that's something that can be fixed. Maybe that's something that can be addressed. So I think there's a good reason here to at least try that first. Yeah. If that's not possible, if you can't get anywhere um, – you know, weigh the pros and cons, think really seriously, take responsibility for what you want and don't mm-hmm. try to put that on other people. Um, acknowledge that any choice you make is going to have upsides and downsides. Um, bear in mind that you are allowed to do that if you want. If you two decide our marriage is over, but we're really good co-parents, this is probably the only way we'll get to have another child. We want to do that. We're relatively clear-eyed about the potential upsides and downsides. That is a choice you can absolutely make. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's worth investigating your other options first. Yeah, agree. And good luck. It's hard. It is. It sounds like you're in a tough spot. Give yourself some grace. Yeah. All right. So uh, staying in the family vein, um, but moving to slightly easier choices. Mm -hmm. uh, The next letter is uh, about a wedding invitation list, which is always fun. Always. Subject is leaving aunt off wedding invite list. Dear Prudence, my younger sister is getting married next fall and doesn't plan to invite one of my mother's sisters to her wedding. This is because when I got married a few years ago, this aunt declined to attend and sent me and my fiancé a long email about how she had prayed about it, decided our wedding was sinful, and couldn't in good conscience attend. I'm not sure what she objected to exactly. While I'm bisexual, I am a woman who married a man. We did live together before marriage and had a secular wedding, but so did other cousins whose weddings she attended. This caused a falling out between me and this aunt and between my mother and her sister. In general, she's gotten increasingly racist, climate change-denying, victim-blaming in sexual assault cases, etc., and I don't miss having her in my life. My sister is in a similar position. Secular wedding, living together before marriage, doesn't want to invite this aunt, since she doesn't want her to attend or send a super nasty decline to attend like she did with me. However, now some of my mother's other siblings are begging us to convince my sister to reconsider and invite the aunt for the sake of family peace. I find this baffling. If she attends, I'm sure she will make drama at the wedding. If she sends a nasty RSVP note that's just opening, or like, what do you say when it's not RSVP? It says if she sends a nasty decline, but that doesn't sound quite right. Yeah, I, decline sounds right. I mean, there's no word for like... Declination? Declin- I'm sure that is an actual word. I don't know if you played it in Scrabble, though, if you would be able to count it. The point is, if she says she's not coming and she's mean about mm-hmm. it, that's just opening my mother and sister up for more hurt. Why invite someone you don't want to attend? Should we just tell these relatives to back off? It is amazing to think that she sent a long email about how the marriage is sinful, but then did not go into detail about why. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued by this lady. Can you write She's, back and ask for more details? Yeah, exactly. Specifically, what aspect what, of our marriage? What is did simple? you think of yeah, was it was it X, Y, or Z? I, I've had a few thoughts. Yeah. I'm attaching some diagrams and photos. Can you tell us where you <laughs> oh, see this in? That's the next letter. Yeah. Um yeah, no, I to me, it feels pretty clear that this aunt does not get an invite to a wedding. Invitations to weddings are not rights, they're privileges. Um, I mean, some some people might not even consider them a privilege, but if you are a wedding or a party liker, yeah, uh, then what you want is you want people around you who are going to celebrate your day that is, you know, commitment and um 
about all things good in your relationship. And it seems that this aunt has repeatedly demonstrated that she will not act in good faith. And then the rest of your family will make things uh, difficult around this particular issue. Yeah, you get to be Maleficent once. Yeah. Like a, you get to send the like get your Maleficent card. big dramatic, I will not be attending and here is why. Yeah. Which I realize is actually the opposite of what Maleficent did. It but is. you know what I mean? Maleficent level trying to ruin a special event. You get to do that once. And then what that means is people get to not invite you to future nice events. Yeah. And particularly that the email, you know, it, it wasn't a vague I'm sorry, I can't attend. Um, it, it was specifically pointed and, you know, cruel. mean-spirited, yeah. um, unkind about a day that was very meaningful and vague. Didn't give you a reason that it was simple. Right? Like, if you're going to condemn me, be specific. Be, exactly. That's exactly it. Know what part of me you're condemning. Yeah. Or tell me so I can avoid talking to you about that. Anyways, it, it seems to me like the what what I would recommend in this situation, what I would do is very definitely not invite this aunt and think through what is the strategy for when the family erupts uh, that I want to have for having the conversation here. Yes. Yeah. And and I think um, either the aunt in question is like trying to get other relatives to do this on her behalf, which right. would just be super hypocritical of her, or they are just like creating extra work for everyone by like going out of their way to try to get everyone to pretend that this woman's not a real jerk. Yeah. Either way, you know, yeah, you get to tell those relatives back off. You, you can say any number of things. You mm-hmm. can say, like, I have no control over my sister's guest list. Mm-hmm. Do not ask me about it anymore, which would potentially redirect them to her, right. in which case, you know, she gets to say, I am not taking input on my wedding invitation list. That lady's a real jerk. Yeah. Um, or you can say, like, you know, a check in with your sister first, like, I have it on good authority from my sister that she mm-hmm. does not want the aunt to attend. You need to stop bringing this up. Yeah. I think this is one of those situations where it's really, may, hopefully, would be really helpful to reflect back on the family, um, how awkward their um, gestures are making everything else around them and making you feel and making the bride-to-be feel. Right. And so to talk about, you know... Um, this is my sister's big day. Just say, just say something like, "We don't want any negative vibes." Oh, I feel like that yeah. would be no a bad good line. Vibes no bad wedding. vibes. No, but to say something like, you know, she's decided on her invitation list. Um, if you want to continue that and just say, you might remember that I received a really mean email from this aunt, and my sister does not want those, you know, kinds of conversations happening around her wedding day. Check in with your sister again. Don't say anything she wouldn't want you to say. But then just I feel like refusing to engage is probably going to be beyond, you know, a set mantra is probably going to be the best bet here. And then I would ask your mom how much she's willing to go back and forth on this, because some families just have a lot of energy for family conflict. And Mm -hmm. your mom may feel like she wants to continue to converse with her siblings or she may feel like she just wants to close that door. So I would check in with her as well. And and if you need just kind of like a useful answer to we want you to do this for the sake of family peace, mm-hmm. you can simply say, my sister finds it more peaceful not to invite people to her wedding who have sent cruel and unwelcome emails to me. I think that's a great line. Get it printed on a T-shirt. Yeah. 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 
Um, because you know they 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 have no interest in family peace. What they have an interest in is uh, accommodating and enabling this particular jerk. And they may be sad because they've accommodated her their whole lives, and they may feel like now it's your turn. Yes, don't let them tell you that. Right, like oh, other people apparently get to choose not to deal with her. Right, that would make me feel like I've wasted a lot of my life. Yeah, I can't have that. Yeah, that's that is not on you, sister of yeah. the bride. Yeah, no, and any time that people are like, well, she's always been like this, so you need to just bend over backwards. Yeah. It's just. Oh, so if I'm an asshole a lot of the time, mm-hmm. I get to be an asshole more? Yeah. That's a terrible rule. That's not something you want to reinforce. Laura, would you uh, read our next letter? Oh, thanks. Please enjoy. I I'll... picked this one so specially for you. <laughs> you are the best, the best. You made me say that you were the best of the children, so. I know, but that's indisputably true. All right, here we go. Buckle in. The subject of this letter is, my father posts his erotic artwork on the same social media account as his family photos. Dear Prudence, my father is a gay fine artist whose erotic artwork has only gotten more sexual as he has aged. His artwork is not exclusively sexual, but he is finding increased financial success for his erotic depictions. Although sometimes I get a bit embarrassed by some of the images he creates, I'm supportive of his talents and I follow his work online. Recently, some photos he took and posted bothered me because they showed a leather-clad model in his home. It may be uncomfortable. My father often posts family photos as well as his artwork on his social media. I'm starting to wonder if mixing photos of grandchildren and photos of racy art on the same profile is appropriate. And I need an outsider's perspective because my family and I are already used to this as normal. Overall, the family photos my father posts are received with appropriate reactions from his friends and fans. His sexy artwork tends to receive sexy comments. Recently, an issue I've had is people have stolen my dad's personal photos that sometimes feature my children to create fraudulent accounts. It really has nothing to do with his art. Also, once or twice, my father has hashtag photos of me or my sister's husband as hashtag gay art, which seems misleading, although it may have been inadvertent as he uses that hashtag so often. What is appropriate when posting family images alongside erotica on the same social media account? That question seems so wrong, but I'm asking it. If I need to draw the line, what exactly should be my criteria? I mean, this definitely feels like a question that was designed to elicit life is a rich tapestry. Yeah, you've got to say it, TM. Life is a rich, rich tapestry. Um, everyone's different. For me, the amount of family photos that I would want um, somebody posting alongside of their erotica, however lovely, would be none. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's necessarily a universal rule. Yeah. Um, but I do think that um, since this is something that has resulted in people stealing photos uh, to create fraudulent accounts that have included your children, you really have a stake to say, Dad, I, I would like you to have a separate account for your work. Yeah. To me, in this letter, two, there, there are two kinds of um, things that maybe need to happen. One of which is it sounds like maybe your dad needs like a social media lesson or someone to kind of walk him through like – Because it seems like you think there are things he may be doing inadvertently. Now, Mm -hmm. if he's not, that's a different story. But if he is hashtagging these pictures of, you know, your sister's husband and your husband inadvertently with gay art, um, then you may just want to sort of sit him down and walk through, hey, dad, when you use, you know, Instagram or whatever photo service you're using, um, this is how a hashtag works. And this is when... It's appropriate to use that. This is when it's not. Like if right. if he needs that kind of just one oh one level tutoring, um, think about maybe someone that you can hire to do that for him. Who or is not related to you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the other piece here is the question. Well, one of several other pieces is the question of 
people um, taking pictures and creating accounts with, I think, your children's photographs. So this, to me, is a thing that I feel particularly strongly about is photo-based apps where pictures of children are posted. Profiles should be kept very private. Yeah. Um, That's, again, my opinion. Your mileage may vary, et cetera. But is it possible for your dad to have like a person, if he really likes having pictures of you and your family, could he have a personal stream and account on Instagram or wherever where he posts pictures of you guys and it's locked and it's private so you know who's seeing it. And if someone was stealing those photos, ostensibly you'd be able to, you know, figure out who. And then he could have a separate account for his artwork. That seems like it might be a good idea here. And I think especially because there are like kids who are minors and can't have the kind of same like, oh, it's fine to use my picture or, oh, I'm actually not comfortable with it that an adult has. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good rule regardless of the kind of art your dad does. Yeah. Um, So, like, I think in general, uh, as a lot of us are sort of like our kids are coming of age in an era where you can put a lot of photos online Mm -hmm. um, and that didn't happen when we were growing up, there needs to be some kind of different rules of engagement. Like, I'm not saying everyone needs to go back to just having like physical family albums that they like mail off to relatives. But I do think it's really easy to think, oh, this is fine. My kid doesn't object. But like, yeah, your kid is six. Your kid thinks everything you do is pretty cool. Right. Um, And part of your job as a parent is to like be protective of their image. Yeah. And if, you know, your dad's kind of laissez-faire mixture of his work and photos of the grandkids means that their pictures are getting stolen and used to create fraudulent accounts, Mm -hmm. that means he should change what he's doing. Yeah. And I think that it's you sound like you are quite supportive of your dad's endeavors. I mean, I would not follow my father's social media account if he were posting erotic art, probably. Yeah. And I think that bit about when it got to a picture of a leather clad model in his home made you uncomfortable. mm -hmm. It's okay, Yeah. To be non-specifically supportive of your dad's erotic art. Exactly what I was going to say. So feel free to give yourself the gift of not following or asking him to send you occasional things if you really feel like, yeah, I, I don't mind seeing this. I kind of like it sometimes. Like, Or if he, if he does some unrelated art, like check that out. But if it would feel better to you to just not follow that, yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Click unfollow real fast. Yeah, it is super okay. It is so say, okay. I am not entirely up to date on my dad's erotic art. Yeah. Um, And so I think for you to either mute or unfollow and have, you know, just a quick check in with him. That's just like, Dad, I love your work. Overall, I'm so thrilled. I I just realized like it was getting a little uh, personal for me in a way that, you know, as your kid, uh, I'm just happy for you, but I'm going to be happy for you from a distance. Yes, that's well said. Super appropriate. If your dad is like, I I can't understand why you don't want to see footage of sexy models in my house. Yeah. You know, that's a conversation for why we have certain boundaries with family members that we don't have with other people. Yeah, exactly. And and it's valid and important and, you know, very, you're very within, um, like, normal, uh, acceptable behavior to do so. The other thing I would say is these accounts where they have uh, stolen personal photos to create fraudulent accounts, you know, definitely go ahead and report those. I don't know if yeah. that will do anything dramatic, but... Um, don't forget to do that because you don't want pictures of your family and kids kind of floating around. Yeah. And like your dad sounds great. I hope yeah. he continues to make the kind of art that he loves and yeah. that he gets all the money in the world. Um, but you're not being a jerk or like doing anything wrong by saying like, you know, I need to set a limit in terms of how much I follow you just as your kid. Mm-hmm. And then also to say we need as a family to reestablish rules about yeah. how we post pictures of the kids online. Yeah. That's 
totally, totally important, I think, actually to to be a little militant about. It is. It's a very good thing to set up some pretty strict boundaries around. I think one of the things that we've come up with is um, my parents don't use social media much. My dad did one time post a video of the baby to his Twitter. And before he did, he texted me the video he was going to use and asked, is it OK if I post this? Here's the caption. Mm-hmm. And I said, absolutely. You go ahead. But and and then the link didn't work because he couldn't figure out Twitter. That does not surprise me at all. It's dad. Yeah. But um, I do think that, you know, for you to say, like, you get to decide um, what what will go on the Internet now on behalf of your children and they will get to decide for themselves later. But to be as protective as you think is wise is um, only a good thing. And so let yourself kind of be assertive and um in charge of those decisions. Yeah, because, you know, again, your, your kids do not have the kind of understanding of their own online persona that they will as adults. Right. You can always err on the side of later as adults putting more pictures of yourself up. You yeah. can't undo stuff that your parents did when you were six and seven and eight. So I think in general, it's good to err on the side of caution. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly to consider it is like pictures of kids or family next to pictures of erotica. That doesn't mean that that's a bad thing inherently, but it might be a better feeling to say, hey, dad, if you really want to do these pictures and if you as his kid are okay with it, asking him to do kind of a private, you know, locked down feed, that's super, super reasonable. Yeah. I mean, you know, much in the same way that I think it's fine to have like um, different taps in a soda maker so that you get coke in one and diet coke in the other. It's great to say we're going to have separate accounts for erotica and separate accounts for pictures of the grandkids. Yeah. It's which one's not a value Coke? judgment? Which one's Diet Coke? We're yeah, not going to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. But if somebody wants Diet Coke and they don't yes. want Coke, it's great that they can hit the Diet Coke button and get the Diet Coke. That is erotica. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I love myself. Uh, all right. Uh, this next letter is, uh, it's my turn, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I quit being a vegetarian six months ago and I haven't told my husband yet. Exclamation ah. point. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been together for 15 years now. Early in our relationship, we both decided to become vegetarians. And in a way, making that decision together brought us closer together. We identified strongly as vegetarians ever since. About six months ago, this changed. I finally succumbed to an overpowering craving for a hamburger. And it was probably the most delicious thing I'd had in my life. I knew it would be good, but what surprised me was that I also suddenly had so much more energy, felt so much better, and even started to look healthier as I reincorporated meat back into my diet. So, after 10-ish years, I'm eating meat again, if infrequently. I still haven't told my husband, and the lengths I go to hide my new diet has gotten a little out of control. I hide tins of sardines in the linen closet, keep frozen fillets in the freezer disguised as bags of broccoli, and have taken to preparing my meals when he's out at work or off with friends. There are a few times I've been caught, but I've waved it away as a treat for the dog, or the smell of steak being from a non-existent barbecue outside. I feel bad for not having told him yet. In fact, I've told about everyone but him. I've almost told him about a dozen times now, but every time I'm finally ready to come clean, he'll say something like, I don't think I could ever date someone who ate meat, or being a vegetarian is a really important part of our marriage. He really hates meat eating and is sentimental about the fact that it's something that we share. I I also hate deceiving him, and my friends keep on telling me that I need to tell him. How do I finally break it to him? One thing that might help is your husband definitely knows. Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel like he 100% knows. He a million percent he knows. He definitely knows. He's not just casually dropping lines like, oh, I feel like I can never date someone who's a vegetarian, who's not a vegetarian. You've been married for years. Yeah. He knows. He definitely knows. The times that he's caught you, he did not really buy the line about, I think there's a barbecue somewhere outside. <laughs> 
or this is a treat for the dog. Because I would imagine that, you know, a meat-flavored dog treat smells different from, like, the garlic chicken you just had cooking. Yeah, my guess is you would have just bought dog treats. Yeah. Um, like, your husband knows these are ridiculous lies that a seven-year-old would see through. And your husband is smarter than a seven-year-old. And I think you probably feel a little embarrassed and ashamed and like you need to justify it. The whole bit about, you know, looking better and feeling better and all those things. Right. It's not my choice. I don't really want to. Right. I just have to because now all of a sudden I have the power of a hamburger I'm inside I'm energetic. Me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great. Listen, if you decide that you want to eat meat again, please eat meat again and enjoy it. But I talk about it. Yeah. And be willing to you know, have a tough conversation. And one of the things that I think is really important and hard in marriage in general is that you are going to disappoint the other person. And I think right now you are afraid of disappointing your husband. And so you are lying to him um, in the interest of not disappointing him. And he already knows. Mm -hmm. um, It seems like you will have some hard things to work through because this has been a part of the glue that is, you know, uh, kept you in a in a marriage for all these years and you're going to have to try to figure out what it looks like to be in a marriage where one of you is a vegetarian and it's very important to him and one of you is not. Yeah. And so I think like two things are going to be really important here. One of them is to certainly apologize for, Mm -hmm. you know, telling him goofy lies. Um, But don't feel like you need to apologize like you have transgressed from some good thing that you used to both do and now you are the bad spouse who needs to be punished um, or has to make it up to him. You know, just as I think it's important to take responsibility for, you did this because you wanted to and you're making choices about your diet that feel right to you. Um, I also don't think you need to say like, I'm I'm so awful. I can't believe I let you down like this. I I need to apologize not only for eating meat, but also for hiding it from you Mm -hmm. and to just like really let him dictate the terms of who has the moral high ground here. Like, I I think that's going to be really important for you. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that, you know, it sounds like the the way that you think of yourself in this particular scenario, um, you might spend, you know, just spend an hour kind of um, imagining how you're thinking about yourself right now. Because you just use words in this letter like I succumbed. Um, I, I was I suddenly had so much more energy. These kinds of like. Uh, things being acted upon you instead of you choosing to act. So maybe something you can do is just like reframe this story in your mind a little bit and give yourself more agency. Just say, I all of a sudden, after years of living this one way, I decided to do something different. And it's actually been great. And I'm happy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can cause some difficulty. And to say to your husband, in a humble way, I'm sorry that I kept this from you. I should not have done that. I'm sorry that I lied to you. But not in the sense but of like, I owe you no. knowledge of everything I eat, just in the sense of this was obvious and it was distressing and confusing to you. Well, like, yeah. And like like we had, we had, if you both commit to being vegetarians early in your marriage, at yeah. some point you choose not to be, that's great. You probably should tell the person that of you course. made that I, decision yeah. with. I guess I just mostly want to acknowledge on the one hand It's totally relevant to the kind of marriage that you two have. Mm -hmm. And you do want to apologize for not talking about it with him. Yeah. But I also don't want you to feel like you owe him constant updates on your diet. I also believe that even if you're married, even if you both share certain values about meat eating, um, it is also not a, like, failing to suddenly have, like, eaten a sardine. Like, you don't owe him that. No, no, no. And aside from, you know, to to think through, yeah, to kind of 
offer up a, a bit of an explanation, but to not feel like you need to justify this or feel like you're coming from a place where you feel frantic and like you need to list 10 reasons why you chose this decision so that he will accept it, which it sounds a little bit like you're feeling that um, at the at the moment. And to, to simply kind of not over explain, um, but to to share what you decided to do and why and let that speak for itself. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think to, you know, you, you know, you need to tell him. I think, you, you know, he's going to find out uh, like more. He's already yeah. knows. But yeah. like all your friends know you're keeping me in the house. Like a- at some point it's going to become so obvious that he will bring it up with you. And I think that would probably feel worse in some ways. So I think to say, I, you know, I want to talk honestly about something. I think we've been dancing around for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of walk through, you know, here's what my thinking was when I did it. Here's what I've noticed since then. Here's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, here's ways in which, I, you know, I want to apologize for the way that I hid it from you. Here's also been what I've been afraid of, which yeah. is that you won't love me, yeah. uh, that you'll leave me, that you'll consider, you know, not eating meat more important than our marriage. Yes. Um, and I can't control for all of those things. And I know you might see them differently, but that's why I've been afraid. And I really love you. Yeah. Um, and so I've been afraid to talk about it with you. I think that's a really good thing to identify. I mean, I think in so many cases, identifying your underlying fear is like one of the most important things you can do. Um, I know for me, as someone who's dealt with anxiety my whole life, I find that immensely helpful to just name my fear. And that may be, you know, I recognize some of that fear in this letter that I have felt before, not in this situation and others. But to just say to him, you know, it's kind of goofy. It was not, I'm not proud that I lied about it. I don't want to do that. I did that because I felt afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and to just kind of be, if, if you feel like you can trust being honest with him about that. I think that would be important. And this could be the pathway to some really good conversations where the two of you talk through, um, you know, how do you eat meat ethically if that's what you choose to do? It could be, you know, going somewhere valuable together. Yeah. And again, you you two may disagree on that. You know, yeah. he may come down like pretty strictly on one side. And at that point, the conversation may be more about, OK, how do we like live in such a way yeah. that I don't, um, you know, intrude upon you? And you don't keep tabs on me. Um, But I think there are ways to peacefully coexist here. And I hope Mm -hmm. that you two can find it. Um, If for no other reason than like, you know, hiding sardines in the like linen closet. is just, that's not, that's not good for you. Go to pull out clean sheets and the tin of sardines falls down. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's only so many fictional barbecues you can. uh, I mean, maybe not. Maybe, maybe they live in Texas. Or maybe they live in Northern California where everything has been smelling like a campfire for the last week and a half. That's also true. All right. This last letter is all you. All right. The subject is addiction fatigued. Dear Prudence, I've been best friends with Paulina since we were 12. We are almost 30. Beginning with the first rehab program at 13, Paulina has been to several others over the years. She has struggled to maintain her sobriety on her own, including AA meetings, and has relapsed countless times. I have tried my best to be there for her, but every relapse and the lies that accompany them have made me more resentful. She was completely out of it at my wedding a few months ago, and don't think she remembers much of it. I grew up as an only child of a single alcoholic mother and had similar trust issues with her, which led to a more distanced but amicable relationship. Prudy, I am just tired of it and feel awful for that. Paulina feels ashamed of herself after every relapse and apologizes profusely, but I'm running out of things to say to try and help. I don't think she has any confidence left in herself to get sober for good, and I secretly find myself losing hope too. Any tips on how I can best continue to support her? I tried Al-Anon as a teenager, but was the only attendee under 60, and felt even more isolated. 
I've been to therapists over the years, but have not found it to be super helpful. Man, this is big. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do want to suggest um, trying Al-Anon again, especially now that you are not a teenager. Yeah. You may find that it is not only people over 60 um, and, and that you may be slightly closer in, if not age, at least life experience as a bunch of other adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say that that's going to be the like magic solution for you, but it may prove helpful. If not, you might also consider um, Adult Children of Alcoholics, mm-hmm. which is another organization um, that literally is just for people who are the children of alcoholics yeah. um, and can often be really, really helpful. Um, so you know, I would I would just want to put in a plug for, again, seeking out other people who have had similar experiences. Yeah. And I think um, the towards the end of your letter, you kind of were were quick to either dismiss or sort of think that therapy and AAA or Al-Anon would not be particularly helpful. And that may be the case, but it may be that you actually do find some value in either or both of those places. So um, it's, I think, certainly worth going back to two or three Al-Anon meetings, try mm-hmm. out different places, different locations, different groups, because they'll have different demographics. Um, your experience probably won't be the same as it was when you were a teenager. If it's not helpful, you don't need to continue to go. But to give it kind of a college try. And then if you can afford therapy um, or get a recommendation, it it may be, again, worth one or two visits to someone who can help you think this through. Right. And, uh, you know, if you can't, afford therapy. The thing with ACA and Al-Anon is it is people who have been through this exact situation. Mm. It has been with other people who are saying, I'm not only at the end of my rope, I've been at the end of my rope for 18 years. Yes. I don't know how to keep doing this. I don't know how to not do it. No, and particularly uh, to then have the additional layer of the relationship with your mother, which congratulations on getting to a place that's amicable with her. That is admirable and must have taken hard work. And then also probably um, recalls some of that difficulty as you navigate your relationship with your best friend. So you've got the relationship with your friend itself and then also calling back to how hard it has been with your mom at different times. Mm-hmm. And I also just want to say implicit to me in this letter is the question of like, can I support her without being on the front lines mm-hmm. of this particular alcoholic disaster? Yeah. And the answer there is yes. Absolutely. You are not... Um, uh, It is not unloving. Um, It is not a sign that you no longer believe she has the ability to get sober um, or get help um, if you don't, like, show up every time she calls. Um, Or if you say, I love you and I hope that you will give me a call, you know, when you are working on getting sober. But in the meantime, if you're drinking, I can't be around you. Mm -hmm. That's not um, cruel. That's not consigning her to despair. Um, that's not abandoning her despite your years of connection. Um, taking a little distance is okay. And it might be, in fact, the kind of only one of the only moves you have left at this point, because it seems to me that for 18 years, you have been so close with her. You have walked with her through different rehab programs, through relapses. Um, and that one thing that you may need to do at this point or may find yourself asking for permission to do is putting a lot of distance in between you and your friend and to to acknowledge that yes absolutely that would be you know an okay thing for you to do and to acknowledge that sounds really tough and um, I'm sorry that you're having to go through that and I think again that's why something like Al-Anon could be really helpful because it's better to go through this with people than alone Mm -hmm. um but to feel like you are someone who's been 
trying to help and prop up your friend while she has been experiencing addiction and relapse, that's exhausting. And then not only to have done that in recent years, but for the last 18 years, that's just so hard. And that's not, um, it's not sustainable. Right. And and so I think the idea of um, like, how could I still be there for her if I weren't like right, right on hand for all, all of this? All the time. You know, think to yourself, if Paulina never got sober, mm-hmm. if this were the story of her life for the rest of her life, what would be an ideal relationship? What could you be there for? Yeah. Maybe that is a monthly phone call. Um, maybe that is every once in a while getting together for a brief lunch yeah. or something early in the day, depending mm-hmm. on how early she starts drinking. Um, and then, you know, going home. Yeah. Um, does that, would it mean like whenever she has an emergency, reminding yourself, this is not my emergency. Um, she has gotten through many of these before. Um, I cannot stop her from getting into more emergencies by bailing her out right now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let her know I love her and that I I will talk to her at another time. Like, mm-hmm. think think through that. Like, if she never gets better, um, if she never stops, what would you be able to handle with her? I think that's a really good practical question to ask. And I think to know and remind yourself that you are able to love your friend without trying to solve her problems is really important because – when we love people, we want them to do well, and we want to be able to help them all the time. And particularly when someone is in their addiction, it's not always possible. And in fact, probably more often than not, it isn't possible for you to be the one who is going to get them through their emergencies, their um, their difficulties, and to try something new. I think to give yourself permission to try something new right now uh, would be really important. Yeah. And, and you know, I would be tired, too, of 18 years of trying to help somebody get sober. I don't think you should feel awful about that. That doesn't mean you think that she's a waste of a person. Um, That doesn't mean you think that she could never get help. It simply means that there's lots of different kinds of help out there. Mm -hmm. um, And you are not a professional and you cannot do it for her. So it doesn't mean you're saying you're never going to get sober or you're not a worthwhile person underneath this addiction um, or or anything along those lines. It just means that you need to build a life for yourself where your own well-being is not dependent on Paulina's sobriety. I think that's really well said. And I think the other thing I want to say is, and I feel like I've said this about a few people, but it's true. Like, I think you're a really caring and loving friend. And so... I remember one time learning about something called solution-based therapy where you go in and identify all the good things about what you're doing. You're already in therapy. You're talking about your problems. You're doing things that are hard for you. So for you to recognize, because it does sound like you're just weary and have also been there for her on the front lines of her emergencies, um, and you might think of yourself as a worse friend for not being there. So if that's part of what you're fighting against, to counter that with you know, you have a lot of love for her and love for your best friend isn't the same thing as solving all of her problems for or even with her. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the way forward. Um, and, and I wish you all the best. And even if it just means like taking fewer of those panicked calls um, yeah, and trying to figure out how do I do that without feeling like a monster, that's going to be that's going to feel really good. Yeah. And you've been able to do that with your mom, and I can't imagine how difficult that was. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you can do it with your mom, I think you'll you'll be able to find a way to do it with Paulina, even though it might be hard in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, I don't know that I would agree that you are the best of the Orphrey children, <gasps> but 
you were very Am I at least today. top three? I mean, yeah, you're absolutely top three. Yay. Yeah, absolutely top three. And Good. you're certainly better than Johnny, who's never even come on the show. Yeah, Johnny. Yeah. I mean, he's great. I love him. He's coming over tonight. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's going to see the baby. Oh, tell him I say hi. Okay. I will. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds or a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 